All right, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. The rest of us, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a chair somewhere within reach. You may have to look around a little bit and turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament, sort of towards the end of your Bible, after the book of Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, as you're turning there, just a couple quick things. If, uh, if you've never been baptized since you've, been, since you've surrendered your life to Christ, uh, come talk to us. We'd love to chat about that with you. It's a joyful step of obedience and celebration of the Lord's grace, as it was uh, with dear Molly there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and a welcome to those of you who are newer. Thank you for gathering with us for worship. We're going to study the Bible today and look at a couple passages on spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and hopefully we'll grow together in this passage. I'm no musician, but I'm pretty sure that wasn't as soothing of a sound as, for example, listening to John and Neil lead us in worship. In this morning's passage in 1 Corinthians 13, God's word will tell us that We might have great skills in life, great knowledge, wisdom, giftedness, learnedness, success, abilities, people know-how, life know-how, and resources. However, the passage will tell us that if we don't have love, we're like a clanging banging pots and pans and metal. That all of our skills, our know-how, our giftedness, without a heart of love is like banging pots and pans. And our skills, our success, our know-how is kind of drowned out if we don't have love filling it and carrying it. The issue in this morning's text is love. Growing to have a a tender, humble heart of love. God's definition of love. And we'll see uh, today and the ruling next week that, that God's definition of love is really different than the world's. But that without love, all our skills, our wisdom our know-how, our pizzazz, our moving and shaking, without love, all of that is just banging metal. It amounts to nothing, the text will say. Why is that? Because love is what gives substance to stuff we might be good at, an edge we might have, success we might have achieved, 
a talent we may have been given. God's definition of love is the embodiment of every one of his commands. Galatians 5.14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, every command, what this is saying is that every command God gives in his word, and there's lots of them, and every single one is important. Every command is to be fueled and charioted with a heart of biblical love. We're to love because Jesus has first loved us, 1 John 4.19. It's Christ's love for us, his death on the cross, his extravagant grace towards sinners, and his substitutionary, wrath-bearing, atoning sacrifice, that love that then launches our love, and that that love is to tenderize our hardened hearts and to melt our naturally cold hearts, which the human heart naturally is prior to regeneration. 2 Corinthians 5.14 and 15, one I've had to memorize as I've struggled to love. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. His love is the reason for ours. Are there ways that you could grow in love in God's definition of love? Are there times when, like me, you might have a little bit of, maybe it's faint, fainter than me, but where you have a little bit of clanging, banging pots and pans echoing, accompanying your your words, your gestures, your thoughts, the stuff you do. Every single person at times, just because we're not perfected, we're not glorified yet, has a little bit of clanging pot and pan syndrome. Everybody. Except for Jesus. And this text is such a gift from God to help cure us, begin to cure us, from banging, smashing pot and pan syndrome, a sickness that befalls the human race. So as, as we continue in our brief break from Romans in this mini-series called Christian Foundations, we looked at humility, looked at the Bible last week. We'll look at growing in God's love, and this will probably take us two weeks to get through. So with that, follow along as I read. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1. God's inspired, inerrant, sufficient word reads, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy, noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. 
Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. Is not puffed up. Does not act unbecomingly. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice with unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. The reading of God's word. If you've been to maybe two or three weddings, you've probably heard this passage quoted, and, and rightly so. It's been, it's been taken up and used in all sorts of settings. But this passage, we ought to be careful not to over-romanticize it, nor over, if I can make a word, esoteric it. Esotericize it, whatever that is. It's, I think it's one of those passages where God's people, where we ought to study it semi-often, because as the passage says, if you're good at a lot of stuff and you do a lot of things, but you're missing this one thing, it's a failure. That you can succeed in tons of other things. But without this, you failed. There's no other passage in the New Testament that says that. That if this one thing is missing, all the other stuff amounts to zero. There's no other thing. Love. We haven't been in 1 Corinthians in a, for a decade. So just a, a little bit of a, a, an extended introduction. Context is so important to this passage. So... First about the city in which this church found itself, first century Corinth, a lively place in southern Greece on the isthmus there, a port city. And you know how port cities are, and they've always been that way. Uh, This city was notorious for having an abundant availability of every sin under the sun. And the city was proud of it. It was famous for all sorts of sexual perversion for all sorts of substance interaction, drunkenness, male and female cult prostitution, and the list goes on. In fact, Corinth was such a foul place in the ancient Mediterranean world that the word Corinthian came to be used in Greco-Roman culture as an unfavorable adjective to describe someone who was vile. You're a Corinthian. Perhaps parents in less noble moments fed up with their teenage kid might at times have been heard saying something like, if you don't shape up, you'll end up like a Corinthian. That's perhaps, in my opinion, I think that's why the Apostle Paul targeted that city and said, I'm going there. I'm not going to avoid that place. I'm going to that place Because Jesus said, I did not come for the righteous, but sinners. And God loves to save people like that because he gets glory in doing so. P. 
people were saved out of all of these and more kinds of enslaving sins. He, he plants a church, he pastors the church for about 18 months, and then he eventually has to leave. And then he gets a letter and hears that things, have, things are just rowdy and rambunctious in the church, that there are all sorts of problems. 1 Corinthians is the most lively letter in the New Testament, just with every issue. As one of my mentors, Rick Holland, said once that 1 Corinthians is a big spiritual spanking. As Paul says, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. So in the church, what was happening, there were rivalries against one another, like within the congregation, as there were multiple pastors and leadership. Some in the congregation were pridefully, arrogantly saying, well, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, one of the other pastors, or I'm of Peter. And the real spiritual ones were saying, well, I'm of Jesus. And there was fighting. There were even lawsuits between the church members, which is totally forbidden, 1 Corinthians 6, slander, competition, jealousy, taking sides, refusing, 1 Corinthians 5 says, refusing to enact church discipline on professing believers. Paul says you're arrogant for not doing that. Sexual sin, showing off, drunkenness, bragging, chaos during worship. They had a love for worldliness. You know, being saved out of that kind of a background, it was a little bit of a battle. John MacArthur writes, quote, they wanted to have the blessing of the new life in Christ, but also hang on to the pleasures of the old. And Paul, in his love, in 1 Corinthians 3, says to the congregation, he says, you are like spiritual babies. And Paul loved this church. So what's going to be his prescription to fix all those problems? What is, what is he going to do? Is he going to bring in like a, a guru consulting firm and say, well, you know, you need, to, you, you need to change the church decorations. You need to change the church carpet, the church building. We need a catchier market brand. We need, we need a catchier slogan or a cooler website. And he doesn't do any of that. Paul does two interesting things that you see throughout the book. Number one, he, he corrects their errors in belief and in behavior. And then number two, he does something so simple and so profound. Here in part in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, we, you, you all need to grow in love. Everybody needs to grow in love. And what is stated in verse 1 to 7. Put your effort into that, he is saying. Put your effort, put your, your disgruntledness and your strength and your energy into verse 1 through 7, among other things. Love. The dear 19th century British pastor, R.C. Chapman, the dear man of God, said, quote, My business is to love others, not to seek that others shall love me. And that is so revolutionary, isn't it? So often we get into trouble, provoked, bitter, too easily bugged, because we suppose that our responsibility is to make sure that we're treated a certain way. To ensure that we are held up in the way we think we should be held up or we deserve. And that's where things get bad. We have to change our focus. It's like when a player on the football team is upset about how the other teammates are playing 
They might not be playing up to par, and, and, then, and the coach will say to him, I hear you, but channel that upsetness to you playing as best you can and to encouraging the other players. That will, that will change things. And so in this highly imperfect church, Paul wants something of that to be the situation to make verse 4 to 7 especially their to-do list. And God wants us to make it ours as well as a church. Our blessed Lord, only ours from bearing the wrath on the cross for our sin, because of us and for us, said in John 13, 34, 35, he says, a new command I give you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also have love for one another. For by this, everybody will know that you're my disciples and the way you love each other. Huh, interesting. So the love within Corinthian church, the love within Cornerstone Church, as we take it upon ourselves to dole out that love and not to ensure receiving it, but to dole it out, will be an apologetic to the culture and a witness to the world. Fascinating how that works, isn't it? Love because Jesus has loved us. Amazing. That the holy, uncreated, triune God would love us. Let us never, ever allow that truth to become inert or stale. That someone of Christ's caliber would love people of ours. The problem is this. When the potentially irritating imperfections of people have become a bigger deal to us than the amazing reality that Jesus loves us. That's a problem. When people's potentially irritating stuff about them becomes a bigger deal to us than Jesus' life, death, crucifixion and resurrection and intercession for us, we've lost our way. What, what occupies more time in your thoughts? What gets more airtime in your mind? The things about people that bug you and you don't agree with and you're upset about? Or that God so loved you that he gave you his only begotten son? Which of those gets more airtime in your brain? Relative to our culture and our flesh, what God is commanding here is totally revolutionary. And it's also freeing because he's saying, again, it's not, God is saying, I have not given you as your responsibility to walk around bugged, irritated, calculated, or guarded. I haven't given you that responsibility. That's nice that he hasn't. God is calling us instead to a high calling that our responsibility is to perform the 13 freeing, loving, blessed actions of love, 15, that are laid out in verse 4 to 7. Because as it was with the Corinthian church, so it is with us. It's a burden. It is a tiring burden to assume that our responsibility is to walk around and just meditate on how we're irritated by so-and-so and so-and-so bugged us and so-and-so ruffled my feathers and I don't agree with so-and-so. That's just a crushing, tiring 
weight to carry around. And God says, I haven't given you and delegated that responsibility to you. But to relax and melt into the love of Jesus Christ and that the love of Christ would control us, 2 Corinthians 5.14. I'm so glad that that verse doesn't say the imperfect stuff about people all around me who I can't escape is to control us. Aren't you glad the verse doesn't say that? I'm glad. It's just like we're leaving. Life is tiring and difficult enough outside of the body of Jesus Christ. The love of verse 4 to 7 is not natural. There's nothing human about it. Uh, it, No matter how skilled we are, these things, I mean, these things come from heaven. This love is not a natural talent. It's not natural to humanity. Uh, It's a skill developed consequence of being saved by faith in Jesus Christ and then through progressive transformation or sanctification. This love is grown and refined as it's tested as we try it out and we struggle and we're convicted and it's, this, this love grows through repentance and repentance and more repentance and resting in the love of Jesus Christ. Also, the love here defined by God in verse 4 to 7, it's, it comes from the mindset of humility, which is why it differs drastically from the world's love. It comes from humility. So in that sense, here's what love is. Love is humility applied in potentially feather-ruffling circumstances. Love is humility applied in potentially feather-ruffling circumstances and around potentially feather-ruffling people. If you live for five seconds in the world, you'll encounter those people and those circumstances. It it requires humility. Love is patient. You have to be humble to be patient, long-suffering. Love, it says, is not provoked. Verse 5, or bugged. To not be bugged takes great humility. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered, meaning love isn't keeping a, a, you know, like an accountant's book tracking of how so-and-so did this or that, and I disagree, and blah, blah, blah. It takes just great humility to wash that away and walk in the freedom and the liftoff of Christ's love. It takes incredible humility. Love bears all things. That takes humility. Love believes the best about people. That takes humility. Humility is the prerequisite to love. Humility is to love what sunlight Soil and water are to plants and to your garden. Which is why love is perfectly seen in Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson suggests a helpful but convicting experiment. That is, to read verses 4 to 7 and insert your name before each of the 15 ingredients of love. Your name is patient. Your name is kind. I don't know about you, but I couldn't make it through more than about two of them before I had to stop because of conviction and asking the Lord's forgiveness. However, if you substitute Christ's name for love, if it's perfectly, because this is 
This is a portrait of Jesus. Verses four to seven. Now, two more things about this by way of introduction, then we'll get into it. You often hear this passage read in those gushy and fun moments of love at a wedding. That's where this is often read. And that's good, and that's great. However, the context for these commands, very important. I think this is where we miss this a lot. The context for these commands is not marriage. Before this passage and after this passage, Paul is not talking about the love between a husband and a wife. It certainly is and must be applied in that context. But the context is love between believers in the body of Christ and between Christians in the local church. This is what Paul wants here. So these are to be practiced not only in one's biological family, but in a spiritual family. Paul is not, furthermore, Paul is not merely saying, okay, only do verses four to seven towards your best friend and towards that person who's really easy to talk to and towards that person where you just click. Ah, that's too easy. That's not where love is really refined. That's like going to the gym, you know, and you can bench 200 pounds, and I'm going to bench three pounds today. Well, you're never going to grow. That's not testing and refining it. But in potentially feather-ruffling circumstances with potentially feather-ruffling people, which is everybody in this room, chucked in the bucket of the church together. And the 15 ingredients of love in verse 4 to 7. Interestingly, in the Greek, they're all verbs. They're all verbs. So, it means they are lived out from the heart to action, to shoe leather. From the mind to street-level life. In, like in, in a lot of Greek thinking and Greek philosophical thinking, much of ideas and debates and thinking was esoteric and ephemeral, and, and this kind of thing, and that maybe served a purpose in some place. But this love is something you're thinking about people and then doing towards them. And an absence of either is a failure to love. Love is not a brief moment of thinking, I love that person. It's thinking, doing these actions and thought, in verse 4 to 7, and then indeed. And, in, and as we listen to and study passages like this, it's, it's important that we focus less on, I hope so-and-so is listening to this passage because they need to hear it. And more in the spirit of Matthew 7, 3 to 5, I need to hear this. Christianity, interestingly, is the religion, the spirituality, first of washing the inside of our own cup, not projecting mirrors to everybody else. So our outline for the text, in verses 1 to 7, just two overall points that'll take us today and Lord willing next week, two overall points, and there'll be lots of subpoints under each one. Number one, the priority of love in verses 1 through 3, and number two, the practice of love in verse 4 to 7. The priority of love in verses 1 to 3, and the practice of love in verses 4 to 7.
Today, we'll just get into, number one, the priority of love found in verse one through three. And there'll be a couple of subpoints. The first subpoint under this is this, without love, great skills, abilities, and giftedness are useless. Without love, great skills, abilities, and giftedness are useless. Look at verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. So the point is pretty clear here, the priority of love. Now, some finer details here. Paul is using uh, the figure of speech called hyperbole in verses 1 to 2. Hyperbole, exaggeration to make a point. Uh, Faith to move mountains. Even if I had enough faith to break the Grand Teton from its base, carry it over Jenny Lake, over Togety Pass, and drop it down in Dubois, even if I had enough faith to do that, that's obviously hyperbole. Or if I knew all mysteries, all knowledge, in other words, if I were omniscient, if I knew everything about everything in the universe, hyperbole. And that's the case in verse 1 as well, when he's talking about the tongue or language of men and angels. The Greek word translated tongue is simply language. It's an unfortunate translation. It's just language. And so he's saying, if I was so eloquent that I could speak in all sorts of languages, I could even speak angelic language if there were such a thing. We don't have a lot of time to get into it, but the issue of the gift of languages erroneously sometimes referred to as the gift of tongues is in view here, which he's been discussing in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 4 through 11, among other passages, teaches without question that this gift was the miraculous ability to speak a previously unlearned foreign language spoken and understood by other people groups on earth for the purpose of authenticating the gospel message in the very transitional time of the first century from the old covenant to the new covenant as the gospel is going just from little Israel to the nations, hence the gift. Acts chapter 2, 4, 11, names languages. You can, we have messages about this online, other places, thecripplegate.com, and so on. So Paul is using hyperbole to emphasize the priority of love. Let's keep, the, let's keep the context in focus here. The priority of love. We know it's hyperbole also because there's no such thing as an angelic language. Every time you see angels speaking in scripture, whether on earth or heaven, what language are they speaking? They're speaking a language that other people can understand. So the point is the priority of love. He's saying, look, even if I had all these abilities, because the Corinthians were fascinated with some of the first century apostolic gifts that ceased with the apostolic era. They had this sinful, proud fascination. They were more interested in sensationalism and in promoting themselves than they were the main thing, which is the priority, which is love. Even if I had infinite abilities, infinite faith, infinite knowledge, it'd be zero if I didn't have love. 
There was so much pride, division, flaunting of opinions, exalting self in this church. Paul saying, none of you even has all of those abilities, not even a fraction. But even if you did, it would matter nothing without love because you're boastful. You're more interested in this hip, cool, being relevant and flashy to culture. In fact, in Corinthian culture, a, a notable historical detail that the oracular of Delphi was like a hip spiritual thing back in the day. They would go to this oracular. This oracular at one time was a gal and she'd get chalked up with different substances and would start going into these ecstatic frenzies, speaking this, speaking this babble that nobody could understand. And in Greek, you know, kind of hip culture, that was cool. Look at that, sensational and neat. That must be something of God. And so Paul is kind of nailing that cultural trend, that cultural fascination that everybody knew about in Corinth. Love is the priority. Imagine if you were to take a piece of paper, and on this piece of paper, you were to write nine zeros. What do nine zeros add up to? Zero. So it is with gifts, skills, success, flashy abilities, without love. Zero, 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 zero. But if you put one in front of nine zeros, it's a billion. And then it's something. Love is what gives value, substance, force to our know-how that too often we pride ourselves with and for. If, he says, I speak with the tongues, the languages of men and angels, but do not have love, notice verse 1, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. A noisy gong, in the Greek, it meant echoing metal, banging metal, and clanging cymbal, the word translated clanging, has the idea of wailing, crashing, loud ringing, banging with no notes in it. When you visit cities around the world, I mean, I've seen this everywhere. As I've gone to Rome and Jerusalem and Quito and Paris and wherever else, there's always street musicians playing. And they gather a crowd. Imagine, though, you go to one of these cities and all they are doing is they have metal and cymbals and pots and pans and they're just smashing them and wailing. That would clear out like three city blocks. Unless, of course, they had earmuffs and like exercise Tylenol. No one would stop to listen. Paul is saying, it's like when you're walking around and doing life and you don't have love, you're like one of these wailing, yelling, clashing pot and pan bands just following people. And it, you're, what you're trying to do and say and be and instruct and insert what I think and this and that, it's, it's just drowned out by the clanging of pots and pans because love is what gives substance. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. Again, you see the hyperbole here, exaggerating to make a humbling, convicting point. Gift of prophecy, probably this is the apostolic gift of being able to infallibly receive and then give revelation from God, whether it was stuff written in the New Testament foretelling things like this. Paul's saying, without love, it's nothing. 
The word mysteries usually refers to truths that God has not revealed, sometimes only in the New Testament. Knowledge, even if we were omniscient, again, without love, it's nothing. Oh, so-and-so knows this and has insight into that. Paul says they're nothing if it doesn't have the kind of love in thought and heart and word and deed in verse 4 through 7. I mean, that, that is convicting and telling. Second sub-point underneath this first point on the priority of love. Without, great, without love, excuse me, great giving and sacrifice are useless. This is in verse 3. Without love, great giving and sacrifice are useless. Without love, great giving and sacrifice are useless. Verse 3, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. This one's a little bit more jarring than the first one. Because there's lots of plaques with people's names on them. And stuff. He says, if I donated everything I had, I volunteered to die as a martyr but didn't have love, it profits me nothing. I mean, God's thinking is just different. John Calvin helpfully writes here, quote, liberality in many cases proceeds from ambition that is selfish ambition. And he goes on to say about great giving and sacrifice without love, it is indeed a fair show in the sight of men. And it is applauded by them and yet is regarded as nothing in the sight of God. No matter how large the donation and the doing, if it's just theatrics without a heart of biblical love, God says it's zero. This is a heart check. Why do we extend... Kindness and generosity to others. Why do, we, why do we do that? To get a plaque and applause? To atone for some low-grade guilt we got going on that can only be atoned for through repentance and through Christ? Or as Calvin observed, are, are, we, are we trying to recruit praise? This is just helpful and calibrating and challenging. Verse 1 through 3 are a helpful guide for all of us, including for us in ministry. Again, Paul originally writes to professing believers in the church, many of whom had a high view of themselves and their ability and said, you know what, I should be chosen for that ministry. I should be put in that position in Corinthian church to do this and that. I would do a better job at X, Y, Z than that person. Why, why did they get chosen? And Paul, in effect, is saying, imagine two scenarios. Imagine a person who was a little bit less skilled, less experienced, less in knowledge and insight, but had more in the humility of love. Or a person who was more skilled, had more insight, more experience, more moving and shaking, ability to get stuff done, but less in the humility of love. Which one is to get, be put in a position? The one with more humility and love according to this passage. Sinclair Ferguson tells the story of a guy in a church who, uh, where he pastored who was frustrated and jealous because he wasn't getting picked for a ministry leadership position. And the guy felt he was more gifted, more able than the other guys in leadership. But Ferguson says the guy was missing one thing, the most important thing, the humility 
of a tender, vibrant people, people, people going after, want to be with people tenderly, Christ-like love. Same thing happened to me. One of the more humbling moments in my life when I was in seminary, I was serving in a ministry that uh, had GCs, home groups, kind of like we do. And I'd been serving there for a few years, and the leader of the GC was, was leaving, uh, moving. And I thought, well, certainly I'll be chosen for this position. I've put my time in. I've served so much. I've done so much. I've been so present. I deserve this leadership position. And it came time for the next leader to be chosen, and in God's good but difficult providence, I was not chosen. A guy who had served and put in about half as much time as I had got chosen over me. And I did not live out 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7 in those ensuing moments. I was jealous. I was bitter. I was listening to myself, preach to myself, I should get this. I've put in this time. He can't, he doesn't, he... I was clanging pots and pans, and my faithful father, our God is a faithful father, if you know him, was necessarily crushing me. And to teach me a lesson now, you got to grow in the humility and the tenderness of love. In verses 4 to 7, God's mathematics are different according to this passage. Great experience, great wisdom, great moving and shaking, great knowledge, great life skill and ability, minus, verse 4 to 7, love, equals zero. It equals clanging pots and pans and banging, wailing band following you around. Give me some, give me 800 milligrams of ibuprofen, pots and pans. This is a word for local church leadership, isn't it? Because church leaders are commanded to use their spiritual gifts. That's like the whole thing you're supposed to be doing and your knowledge and to take those up and serve the church. Paul says, in effect, a pastor may have more degrees than a surgeon and pile up letters after his name, masters, doctorate, certification, ordination. And and he may be the kind of guy who, he could be woken up at 2.12 a.m. and just recite doctrines and verses. But if that pastor doesn't have love, verse 4 to 7 love, that text says he's nothing. He's clanging metal. He's pastor banging pots and pans. On his business card and on the website, it should say, our pastor, Dr. Clanging Pots and Pans, has his master's and his bachelor's and his doctorate and his postdoctorate and AC, ALC, ordinate, blah, 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 letter after letter. And an elder or church leadership team, they may be able to defend doctrine, huge, huge list of books they read, but if they do not serve with the humility of love, they're nothing, the text says. So what gives a leader's knowledge and learning and training and all that stuff substance and what fills a church leadership team's shepherding with substance is verse four to seven, kind of love. And may God have mercy on us. And it's not only the leadership's responsibility to love. Paul is actually speaking to a congregation here in verse 4 to 7. Church members, 
believers. If there's one thing that makes a good church good by biblical standards, it's not the carpet, it's not the time, it's not the website, none of that. It's a congregation whose hearts and actions are obediently and humbly filled with the love in verse 4 to 7. That's what makes a good church good, without exception. Where every church member understands we're always in God's school of love, proverbially speaking, we're, we're getting our bachelor's in verse 4 to 7 love, or master's, or, or PhD. And if you're someone who you've gotten your PhD in verse 4 to 7 love, then great, then move on to postdoctoral work in verse 4 to 7 love. Praise the Lord. Because we're always, and let us always see ourselves in Christ's school of verse 4 to 7 love. When do you graduate from it? When do you need to stop repenting of interlessable moments, failing in that love, and therefore stop growing? When do you need to stop growing? When you reach a certain age, 70, 80, this, that, the other thing. Never, never, because we never arrive at Christ-like perfection until we're in heaven, and so we graduate from the school of love when we're in heaven. Would God say, would God say to you that you've earned any particular degree and verse four to seven love? What if, which of these 15 parts of love would God say, I, I would like you to pray about one or two of these and grow in them? A little assignment for us as a congregation. Ask someone close to you who is a strong believer in this list of 15 things, which we haven't even talked about yet, in verse 4 to 7, we will, Lord willing, next week. Ask someone close to you who's a strong believer, maybe one or two of these, which one do I need to pray about and grow in? The helpful assignment. I need to do that assignment. And I have a feeling which ones, it'll be more, more than one or two for me. This is what gives life. There's a more noble approach that if we don't like something, uh, if we don't, if we're bugged about something about somebody or about the local church we find ourselves in at a particular season of life, there's a more noble approach than the Corinthian approach. Taking sides, chucking slander, pride, division, factiousness, Paul suggests that a more noble approach is to take all that energy that we would otherwise use in taking sides and pride and being bugged, channel all that energy into earning our degree, whatever, whatever the next degree might be in our life, in verse 4 to 7, kind of love. Because love is our responsibility to enact, not to ensure we're receiving. R.C. Chapman, again, says from his book on love, says, quote, to reform the church of God, we should always begin with self-reform. Schisms and divisions will increase so long as we begin with reforming others, which is why Paul says, no matter who you are, church leadership, attender, something in between, love. How can we avoid being walking pots and pans, banging, clashing, wailing. Just start right here and we'll, we'll begin here next week. First John 4.19, we love because he first loved 
us. So marinating our minds in the love of Jesus Christ that would move us to repentance and faith and salvation and bowing the knee and saving faith to Jesus Christ, or if you've already done that, again, bowing the knee and praise and in sanctification to him who, though he was rich, became poor for our sake so that we, in our spiritual, moral poverty, might become rich. Jesus died on the cross before we'd even lived. That initiatory, prefacing love. This is a great love. The love of Christ controls us. Have you been saved? I mean, 1 John, as we read earlier, says, if you don't love, you're not saved. Whoa. Because if you can't love your brother who you can see, how can you love God who you cannot see is the rationale. And the good news is Christ's nail-pierced arms are open so wide. Maybe you're in some sort of deception, like Molly humbly confessed she was for a long time, or not deception, you just have a hard heart or something in between. Oh, there is a fountain filled with blood, as we sang, from Jesus Christ that seeks to wash you and cleanse you, motivated by his mercy. He's not tapping, waiting for you to hit a certain works quota. No quota. Just falling down and repenting and putting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we do so. And may we revisit that gospel. He loved and therefore, we love. Father in heaven, thank you for your piercing, helpful, warming, challenging word. Father, we don't, we don't want to have banging pots and pans syndrome plaguing us any longer. It's a burden, Lord. So help us, all of us this week in, in the ways we might need to as we talk to one another and invite input from verses four to seven. Oh, Father, that we would have the freeing and the light yoke of Jesus Christ opening up the channel, having received his love every day to then give some of that love to others. May we do so, Father, that we would not be nothing and we would not be clanging pots and pans for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.